0: You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 19, and we come across a narrative featuring Zacchaeus. Luke chapter 19, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Uh, Let's stand as a congregation for these words. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. Many of you know what April 15th marks. Uh, Sixty-five percent of Americans are expecting to get a tax refund this year when they file their taxes. However, many of them will be surprised that refund may not be as big as they had hoped uh, because of the new changes uh, in the tax law affecting 2018. Well, our series on telling the truth about Jesus brings us to a very surprising and somewhat shocking scene in the Gospel of Luke, where we're going to come across a first-century tax collector who is ready and willing to give a tax refund. Uh, So look with me at Luke chapter 19. And I always like to place a book in its bigger context or the section of Scripture in its bigger context. So a few notes about Luke that might be helpful. Uh, Luke is the longest of the Synoptic Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, it's the longest of them. Uh, Luke portrays Jesus Christ as being the Savior of the world. So even in the very beginning genealogy in Luke 3, he takes the genealogy of Christ and pushes it back all the way to Adam to make that point. Um, Also, Unlike some of the other Gospels, Luke devotes 10 entire chapters to Jesus' final journey to the city of Jerusalem. In other words, that last part of his week or two in ministry, Luke's going to take 10 chapters just to talk about that. And so when you come to the scene in Luke 19 with Zacchaeus, keep in mind this happens about four days before Christ's crucifixion. So in other words, everything is sort of building up and going to climax in why did Jesus come and what happened to Jesus? So with that in mind, look with me at verse 1 as this narrative begins, thinking about Luke wanting to put before us Jesus Christ, the compassionate Savior. He says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, Luke wants to put before us the initiative of Jesus in reaching the lost. Not just here, but this is a picture of his entire life and ministry. He's he's always looking for opportunities to bring the truth to those who don't know it. And so as you read these words, he was passing through, we know where he's headed, he's going to Jerusalem. That's very clear. But to kind of ask ourselves, is is this just kind of a chance thing? I mean, there he is, he's in the neighborhood, And, oh, wow, this is really interesting how all these things just happen to happen. Well, I think if we speak of the providence of God, we speak of his secret will and his preceptive will or his revealed will, we have to agree that this was the will of God, that as Jesus is obedient to the Father, it's not a coincidence that he passes through Jericho. Uh, It is true geographically. Jericho is on the main route, the Transjordan route, to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, it's a major trade route, so it's a very dominant, practical route. But it's not because of geography that Jesus finds himself there, taking the initiative to reach the lost. Jericho is a very interesting city. Uh, it's rich in history. It's known as the city of palms and palm trees. Uh, Sort of a beautiful city. Prior to this in Luke 18, Jesus heals a blind man just outside the city of Jericho. But I can't help but wonder if there's another piece in the history of Jericho that that is sort of deep within the background of this. Uh, I'd like you to go with me to the book of Joshua for a moment. Joshua chapter 6 and verse 26. Joshua 6 and verse 26. Twenty-six. We know that among the people of Israel, they have a deep understanding of their own history. Uh, and the little bit we can ascertain about Zacchaeus was he was Jewish, working, as we'll see, as a tax collector for the Roman government, uh, collecting taxes basically from his own people to go into the pockets of Rome. Uh, But as a Jew, you would understand Jericho is a city that has much history to it. So if you look with me at Joshua chapter 6, as Joshua is preparing God's people to take their first city, which will be Jericho on the other side of the Jordan, notice what's recorded for us in verse 26 regarding Jericho. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city Jericho. At the cost of his first son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. It was a city placed under the curse of it being given over to total destruction. Now we know centuries after this there is a king uh, who does attempt to rebuild and does rebuild on the city to the loss of his first son uh, whether that be a direct act of God's judgment or the implication that they would do this as almost a child sacrifice Uh, but in either way we see this city that was once cursed long ago has now been repopulated but what a thought of now we'll be blessed with the Messiah himself coming into that city what what a, a reversal which kind of reminds us, isn't that part of what Jesus Christ's ministry is all about? The the curse of sin being reversed through his death and his resurrection. Now let's return to Luke chapter 19, because in verse 2, we go on to see that not only does Jesus Christ take the initiative to reach the lost in obedience to the Father's will, But the love of Christ seeks after the worst of sinners. And so in verse 2, we're just introduced to Zacchaeus. It says there, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So we know a little bit about Zacchaeus. Uh, This scene is not recorded in any of the other Gospels. So it's unique to the Gospel of Luke. Fits in well with his theme. Uh, The name Zacchaeus, ironically, means pure or clean. And yet, in this case, we clearly meet one who who does not know Christ. But even beyond that, thinking of the worst of the worst, he's a tax collector. And he's not just any tax collector. uh, He is a chief tax collector. Uh, Now, what this would imply is Jericho's on this major trade route, so the Roman government had put a number of tax collectors because this is a big form of revenue. And it appears that Zacchaeus had oversight of many other tax collectors along this route. So think as a Jew, your land is under the occupation of another. And you you can't even travel and do business without paying customs and taxes. And they're not going to the nation of Israel. They're going to the Roman Empire. And not only that, you have a fellow Jew who is going to be collecting these taxes and, in a sense, uh, extorting his own people for his own benefit. Luke's the only gospel who not only will give us a numerous incidents of Christ interacting with tax collectors, this being the sixth one in the Gospel of Luke. But in every one, the tax collector is oddly enough presented in a favorable light because something happens to this particular tax collector. But think of the fact that he would have been despised by Rome Rome did not value those they hired to do this. It was a job. They they weren't given citizenship. So Rome did not look on them with favor. The people of Israel did not look on these tax collectors with favor. Um, They were despised. So in a sense, you could argue he is one of the worst of the worst. Notice he's not just a chief tax collector, but he's wealthy. Now, it's not that Scripture says wealth is sinful, but I ask you the question, how typically would a tax collector acquire wealth? And I think we all know the answer. It's by taking more than is required and you pocketing the difference. So Rome could care less how much initially you collected as long as you met the percentage they required. So if you could go over that and get it out of people, that's, your, that's for you. So here is Zacchaeus. And then look down at verse 5. Again, thinking of this is all a part of God's will unfolding. In verse 5, it says, When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And what prompted Jesus to look up? I don't think Zacchaeus was the first person who ever climbed a a low-lying sycamore tree to try to see something. I doubt it was unusual to see children do stuff like that, climb trees. So what prompted Jesus not just to stop, but to look up? And we could present all kinds of thoughts. Oh, well, maybe Zacchaeus yelled down. Maybe he heard some noise in the trees. But I think it's more than that. You have one who is seeking by God's grace to reach the lost. And notice what Jesus says You must come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now, you could say, Well, Jesus realized. Uh, He would need to spend the night somewhere before entering Jerusalem. So was that just kind of a demand of hospitality? But there's something interesting about how Luke uses the word today in his gospel. Whenever Luke uses the word today, he points to an immediacy or divine necessity that's implied. So Jesus is not saying, You look like someone who, I'm going to go to your house today. You look like you have the means to provide for me. Uh, But it is imperative. Today is the day of your salvation. Come, Come down from there. And wouldn't this fit the character of Christ, who as God knew all things? Although there were times in his earthly ministry, we see some limits on that. Uh, that he willingly put himself under, but he knew, knows Zacchaeus. He knows this man needs Christ. So this isn't a coincidence it 's not something we should look at and say, well, that 's really interesting how all these details just kind of fell into place. Translate that into our everyday conversations with people. Those are divine appointments. We don't know the nature of what we might discuss. I was talking to someone not that long ago, someone who is not a Christian. um, And I've kind of had some contact with them over the last like six months. Uh, And we were talking and she was mentioning that she has gone through some difficult things in her life and and doesn't feel or just kind of questions. Does does God really have a plan? You know, what, what kind of God is this? And at one point in our conversation, I simply said to her, did you ever think about the fact that how we even connected together, what does that tell you about God? I don't see that as a coincidence that I happen to meet this person, that we happen to kind of talk about some stuff, and all this happened before some things entered her life, and then, you know they didn't know where to turn. That, that, that's God working. And as you look at this scene, this is God at work through the sun. And this, you could argue, is how we should look during the week. Taking the initiative to reach the lost, not because we try to manipulate circumstances that way, but because God is at work. And when you think about the initiative of Jesus, his love for us, um, I want to take you to the book of Hosea. To see that this is who God is, as we see in a reference in the book of Hosea. Uh, Look with me at Hosea chapter 11. And you may be familiar with the fact that Hosea is a book written that's going to highlight the faithfulness of God and contrast that with the unfaithfulness and spiritual adultery of his people. Uh, So you have those two polar opposites being reflected here. But the book itself continually puts before us God's unconditional love. Not a love that just turns the other way when there's sin. A love that is just and righteous. But listen to these words that, again, I would say that Zacchaeus, uh, the people of Israel, know the book of Hosea. He's a minor prophet. He's an important prophet, minor just in terms of the length of the book. He's a pre-exilic prophet. So in other words, he's writing here about stuff before they go into the Babylonian captivity, where they will go in because of their unfaithfulness. And would they during that time, perhaps, question, does God still love us? Has God abandoned us? I think we have people around us today who ask those same questions. So look at Hosea chapter 11 and listen to what the Lord says through the prophet Hosea in verses 1 through 4 and then verses 10 and 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more I called Israel, the further they went from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to the images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck and bent down to feed them. And then verses 10 and 11, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from Assyria, I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. What a picture of the relentless love of God. And the work that he will do in a people who, no matter how much he shows them he loves them, would would push back against that. Now you have Christ walking the streets of Jericho. And as we'll see, there's plenty of people from Israel that will reflect this same sort of attitude. Let's go back to Luke chapter 19 and continue looking at here the compassionate Savior because Luke's emphasis throughout his gospel is on those who are marginalized and outcasts in society and tax collectors would fit into that group. So not only does Jesus take the initiative to reach the lost, But we see in this account as well the inner working of God. That unbeknownst to Zacchaeus, God is at work. Not just in this scene, but certainly everything that brought him to that tree, to that place, to this time in history. In the Gospel of John, you have Jesus saying, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Was God drawing Zacchaeus to Christ? Because we can read this and think, well, he was in the right place at the right time. But we need to ask, how did he get to the right place at the right time? It was because of the inner working of God's power. Notice verse three. You have, maybe you might say, Zacchaeus is a, a spiritual seeker, he, he's got questions. And I think of the workshop on Saturday, we're we're opening that and saying, you have questions about God, questions about the Bible, questions about maybe just why why should anyone believe in anything? Well, look at verse 3, referring to Zacchaeus. He wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. Now, the word see is a, a very broad term. It can mean anything from, he, he just wanted to, to look at him, You know, who, who is this guy that we can clearly say Zacchaeus has heard about? And especially as a, a tax collector, you're going to meet people from all over the Roman Empire. And, and Jesus was being talked about. So he's heard about who this Jesus is. He has no idea of what Jesus looks like. I mean, I think that's hard for us to understand in a day and age where we can see pictures and video of of all kinds of things happening across our world. I think here's someone everyone's talking about, but you don't have any idea what does he really look like? Could you have bumped into him and perhaps not even known it? But the word can also mean to inquire about. That, That maybe... Zacchaeus also wanted an opportunity to talk to him, to to ask questions. And I think we downplay the importance of people you know who get to know you. You might be the only person they feel comfortable enough with to ask you certain questions about the Bible. And it's good for us to realize, to flip that around, it's very intimidating to say to someone, I don't know what this means. In a day when we all want to look good, we all want to look intelligent and knowledgeable. So here is this tax collector in a tree. He just wants to see Jesus. But he's got two obstacles, and they're almost kind of humorous. The one is he's short. There's a lot of people. You know, you're moving closer toward Passover. Everyone's traveling into Jerusalem uh, and the crowds. But yet his eagerness, his desire is clearly a work of God here. This is to no credit to Zacchaeus that he says, I'm going to run ahead. I I know where the road goes. I'll I'll find a spot and, and I'll take the best vantage point I can find. Now, as you're reading this, you may have noticed there's no mention of faith. There's nothing said here that Zacchaeus placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, I think as we look closely at verse 6 and verse 8, we would agree he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. So, what's important here is not that you don't find mention of the literal word faith, but is that his actions speak louder than words. That how he acts reveals a transformation that takes place. Notice in verse six, when Jesus speaks to him, in the immediate response of Zacchaeus, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Which may imply he was hoping for some kind of opportunity to talk to this guy, to ask questions. And who knows if maybe one of his questions was simply, can I be forgiven for things I've done? Because it always amazes me how much baggage people carry with them. And often sometimes very, very young people who carry tremendous baggage because of sinful choices in their life. So he immediately comes down. He's he's so glad that Jesus spoke to him. In the midst of all of these people, Christ singles him out. But then notice as well, verse 8. It says, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, there may have been a little interruption here. We're not sure if all of this happened immediately on the street there. Did some of this happen once they got to his house? But it's very clear there's two things at work here. One is it's a public statement that he makes. He, he's not whispering this in Jesus' ear so no one else hears him. It's a public statement, and it's a statement that shows repentance, and restitution. Now his restitution offer is quite moving. As a Jew, he knew I would say what the Old Testament law was. Old Testament law was if you are caught stealing from anyone you have to add a fifth of value to that and then pay that back. Zacchaeus says I will pay back four times the amount. Now, you may wonder, well, is he just kind of, you know, saying, look look how good I am? Uh, I don't believe that. I think you see a true humility, and I think the reason he picked four is not just he was saying, I am truly want to deal with this in a way that is right and proper. But if you recall Nathan, when he corners David and tells him the story to, to pull out of him a confession of sin, He tells David about this one who comes and steals the lamb of another. And David responds and says, that guy should pay four times the amount. Is it possible that Zacchaeus was saying, I I so want to do what is right that my thoughts go to the one King David who had a heart after God he said that in that analogy and story, the right thing is pay back four times the amount. You don't need to find the word faith here to say what a transformation in this man who has met Christ. Notice in verse 9, halfway through the verse, Jesus says, because this man too is a son of Abraham. Now we've assumed, and I think it's correct, Zacchaeus was Jewish. So Jesus is not suddenly making some new discovery about his genealogy, but he's saying now you truly are a son of Abraham. You are reflecting the faith of Abraham, just like Paul would say in Christ, we are sons of Abraham. Not an ethnic statement, but a spiritual statement about our grace and standing before Jesus Christ. This is not the first time in Luke's gospel where he ties discipleship to how you handle your finances and possessions. In the previous chapter, he talks about this rich young ruler. And Jesus says, you, you really want to follow me? Sell everything you have. And we know the outcome. He... he He walks away, sad. Matthew and Mark record the same scene, and they emphasize he he walked away and grieved. See, it's not unusual for Luke to say, if you're a follower of Christ, this changes everything. And it changes particularly how you view your finances. And we have no indication that this meant Zacchaeus was to stop being a tax collector. I would tend to think Jesus wanted him. Continue to be a tax collector, but be one who is just and generous with what you receive because that's exactly what he desires to do in this case. I don't know if any of you remember, and I, I certainly won't sing it, but as I was working on this passage, I thought of a little song that I remember hearing years ago about Zacchaeus was a wee little man. You can probably know the line. But I thought as fun as that song was, and obviously it worked because I can still remember it, there was a part of it that I don't remember the song ever teaching. And that is we are to imitate the example of Christ here. That this isn't just a good narrative, a fun narrative, The means of a catchy little tune about a wee little man. But to say, all right, if if Jesus Christ initiated contact with the lost, if it reveals the inner power of God at work, then what are we doing to imitate the compassionate Savior? Because you see in verse 7, as with most accounts in the gospel, not everyone is thrilled. And so you get to verse 7, and you have the reaction of the crowds. In other words, the reaction of others to Jesus' love for sinners. Verse 7 says, all the people saw this and began to mutter. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. The word mutter is a polite way of saying they began to complain, to criticize, to say you can't, you, he shouldn't be doing that. You know, this guy's a tax collector. He's a, he's a chief tax collector. What about us? We're, we're better than him. Well, why isn't he coming over to invite me to go to his house? What's wrong with this? Uh, the word guest is, is an interesting word. It literally means to unhinge your animals. And the thought is that you're going to spend time with that individual. And we know in ancient cultures to share a meal together is a sign of friendship and full acceptance. So this is culturally a big deal. This isn't we're just going to have a cup of coffee like we might say to someone today. This is saying "I'm, I'm welcoming you. So that's the reaction of others. They look at this and say this doesn't make sense. This is too messy to get involved in. Uh, If you really want to follow Christ or be religious, you, you stay away from people like this. But isn't that the whole point of Luke's gospel? That Christ came for all, including the outcasts, the ostracized, the marginalized, those that our society wants to avoid. But then go down to verses 9 and 10 where we see the importance of imitating Christ's example by the ins- brief instruction he follows with here. It says, Jesus said to him. Now we might read that and think, all right, so he he's turning now back in response to the crowds and everything else. He He's speaking simply to Zacchaeus. The only problem is him is in the third person, which implies Jesus is broadening this instruction out, not to just Zacchaeus, but to everybody who's within earshot here. And so in other words, what he wants to say to them is, the mission of Jesus should be the mission of everyone who is a follower of Christ. That you've seen what I'm doing. This is what you are to do. Because he says, I have come to seek and to save what was lost. I have come to search for, to initiate, and be diligent to bring this message to those who need to hear it most. Doesn't this sound a lot like what the prophet Ezekiel was saying when he was saying, where, where are your shepherds? Where are those who are seeking after the hurt, the lame, the injured? And then God "He says, I, I will do that. But then is he also calling to raise up shepherds? It has been said that in this scene, you have Jesus as the model savior. But then you also have Zacchaeus as the model saint. In other words, it's implied he has experienced here what he will now go out and hopefully tell others. So I think we all need to ask ourselves two questions. First one is simply, who are you specifically praying for and desiring to lead to Christ. Who are you specifically praying for and desiring to lead to Christ? And and I say that more so than wanting them to come to this church, which I would love to see happen, but, but that's secondary to who has God placed in your heart, who you have contact with, who you know that you're praying for diligently every day. And and I encourage you if you have a name, you know, email it to me. Tell me who who's the person on your. Uh, I say this in love. Who's the person on your hit list? You know that that you're praying for. But then a second follow up question with that would be this: What are you doing to initiate reaching that person? It's good to pray for people, and certainly that's important. But but what are you doing to initiate? contact, conversation. Now, you cannot force it. It's a work of God in the individual. But, but what are you doing to, to present those opportunities? Because if we understand this story correctly, it doesn't just leave us thinking about a short little man whose life has changed and improved. It, it brings before us the challenge to imitate the one who is the compassionate savior. Uh, Please join me in prayer. Lord, there is not one of us here who should feel as if this text is not directly written for our instruction and our teaching. And so may you burden us if we don't have an answer to those two questions that we would not rest until we do have an answer. May we imitate the example you have set because you empower us and your spirit lives in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.